Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com, the big change program with... Josh Lajani. Hey, he's right here with me in New York City. I'm here too. And Mia's here too. Say hi. Hello. And um, where was I? And this podcast is part of my mission. Oh, and Well Start Health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a great and grateful life. So you ever wonder why about 92% of New Year's resolutions fail after one year? and why this current cultural obsession with grit and willpower has failed to move the needle on our behaviors, and how come longtime Buddhist monks demonstrate more self-control than the rest of us. Today's guest, David DiSteno, FUD, PhD, has been studying these and related issues for a long time. And David is kind of a psychology superstar, so I was amazed when he agreed to take time out of his busy schedule to chat. He's a professor of psychology at Northeastern University in Boston, where he directs the Social Emotions Group. And reading from his official bio on his website, David is a fellow for the Association of Psychological Science and the American Psychological Association, for which he has served as editor-in-chief of the journal Emotion. His work has been repeatedly funded by the National Science Foundation and has been regularly featured in the media, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CBS Sunday Morning, NPR's Radio Lab, Talk of the Nation, USA Today, and finally, on the Plant Yourself podcast. So I contacted David after reading a brilliant opinion piece of his in the New York Times last December. And in this piece, he argued that we're using weak and toxic strategies in our quest to delay gratification of immediate desires to achieve long-term goals. And he says that grit, willpower, and cognitive control are simply the wrong tools for the job. Instead, he argues and he demonstrates through really interesting studies, long-term thinking in humans is tied to our social intelligence. We sacrifice today, like helping a friend move, donating to a charity, and so on, to demonstrate to our social group that we are trustworthy, and worthy of their investment in return. So the part of our brain that sacrifices now for future reward is fueled cleanly and efficiently by what he calls pro-social emotions, such as gratitude, pride, and compassion. And in a minute, we'll get to that. But first, I just want to remind everyone, if you'd like to become a WellStart coach, you can... Email me, hj at plantyourself.com. Let me know. We will add you to our notification list. And I promise in the next day or two, you, all of you who have already done so will be getting an email with information. The course starts on October 29th. Uh, that's about it in terms of announcements. The last, the latest Wellstart uh, 
participant cohort to get yourself healthy has already begun, so we'll be letting you know when we're going to be opening up another one of those. And since I have Josh and Mia here, let's take advantage of them for a couple of minutes before we get to David DeStano. Josh, what's on your mind? Um, not a whole lot. Pretty nervous about this, uh, about the swimsuit calendar we're putting together for Well Start. <laughs> um, you know, we're taking pre-orders now in case people, uh, want one, and we'll be printing them up soon, as soon as we all have six-pack abs, <laughs> and are shredded. Uh, but, other than that, I'm just excited to be here with my buddy Howie. Just having a good time in New York City, trying to get some work done, and um, spend some time together. So, pretty fun. That's what's on my mind right now. Alright, thank you Josh. So, um... Without further ado, let's have this conversation about why grit and self-control and willpower are weak tools to use in the long term to make our habit changes and to make our health destiny come true. So without further ado, David DeSteno, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's a great pleasure. I'm so excited to talk with you about your research and the insights that you've brought to it. Um, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about, about yourself and sort of the arc of how you got interested in studying what you do. Sure. Uh, so I'm a social psychologist. I uh, am a professor at Northeastern University in Boston. And uh, the way I got interested in, in studying emotions is when I was in graduate school at Yale, um, my advisor, uh, who was Peter Salovey, was the, the creator of something I'm sure you've, you've heard of, which is called emotional intelligence. And that is how do we how do people use their emotions to, to benefit themselves uh, and others in life? Um, and I've always became interested in, in how people can use emotions as tools to help them achieve their goals. Because if you think about it, what do emotions do? They typically guide our behavior. If we're afraid of things, we avoid them. Uh, if we love something, we approach it. Uh, if we're angry, we kind of seek to, to, to uh, attack or remedy whatever that block, the thing is that blocks us. Um, but the thing I'm more interested in is, is how we navigate kind of the social world. So for humans, being healthy, being having high well-being, being successful means not only navigating the physical world, but navigating the social one. That is, how do we form relationships with others? How do we uh, treat them fairly? Uh, how do we build those social bonds that help us succeed in life? And there are this whole, these whole suite of emotions that are involved in social life, things like gratitude and, and, and compassion. And so I'm interested in how those shape our behavior and our decisions and how they can lead us to have a more successful life and achieve our goals. Yeah, it's interesting because I was, I was talking with a business partner yesterday who was thinking about, uh, you know, like humans are, we're, we're so successful in, in life on earth. Like we've, you know, like nothing can really hurt us. Except for other humans, you know, aside from like, right. you know, plagues and things <laughs> like right. it's like our emotion, our social, our social world is the world of danger and opportunity, much more so than the natural yeah. world. Well, if you think about humans, I mean, there are many things that help us reach the state of, of dominance that we have on on Earth. Um, but one of them is our ability to kind of cooperate with each other. That is, you know, I we're talking on Skype right now. I didn't have to figure out how to build this. Somebody else did, right? And so we're all we're all using our own abilities to interact with other people to accomplish things that none of us would be, or few of us would be likely to accomplish on our own. But the problem with that, as you're saying, is that means our outcomes 
we benefit from interacting with other people, but they're also the greatest danger to our outcomes if they're not, if they don't, you know, hold up their end of the bargain or their their intentions uh, and morality aren't aren't high in the sense that we can we can trust each other. So, so I'm familiar with emotional intelligence through Daniel Goleman's popularizations, sure. um, which I'm sure to some extent represent correctly and some extent erase some nuance. So I'm really curious, given where you are now, when you were studying emotional intelligence in those early days, were emotions seen as a good thing or like a thing to be managed? Like the way you oh, have yeah. sort of, you know, financial intelligence because you just want to blow your, your whole paycheck on a Saturday night. Yeah, no, it, you're you're hitting on an important point there. So, throughout most of the 20th century until the latter parts of it, emotion was kind of viewed as as a problem, and you know people were kind of fascinated with the view of the mind as a computer. Wouldn't it be great if the mind were completely rational and didn't have these this, this emotional baggage to it? Um, but what we came to realize is, sure, emotions can lead you down the wrong path in making decisions sometimes. But the reason they haven't been extinguished over you know, evolutionary development is that they serve an, imp an important purpose. And, and the wisdom and kind of, of, of the emotional intelligence concept is to recognize when and how and which emotions to use in which context to, to achieve our ends. And so my goal, and I, I think you know, the article that you read in, in, in my most recent book that kind of started this conversation is about how do we use our emotions to kind of further our own individual success and societal success. And, and in, in, in neglecting emotions, we're avoiding uh, a mechanism that has a lot of power. I mean, if you think about it, when do people do really hard things? Oftentimes, it's not when they think they should, it's when they feel they should. You know, if you felt intense gratitude or intense compassion, it's probably motivated you to do things or make sacrifices that you normally might not have. Yeah. So like here, here's what I missed when I read your article and I read it like the day or day after it came out. I think it was in December. And in preparation for this call, I did a much deeper dive into into your research, watched some videos, read some papers. And by the way, I've got to say, I'm amazed at your ability to write academic things and also write a popular book. Ah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but like what I what I wrote in all caps in preparation for for this uh, this call was emotions help us. And that mm -hmm. like that, like I'm 53 years old and that was a revelation to me like mm -hmm. this morning, like, oh, emotions can actually be a good thing. And, I, you mm -hmm. know, and I think that's like um, when you talk about like we get to choose our emotions, like that's not how I think about my emotions. I don't choose them. They sneak up on me. Yeah, and they, and no, they bug right. me. So 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 we have this idea that that we are basically powerless in the face of our, of our emotions because certain things happen in the world and our emotions respond to them. And to some extent, that's true. I mean, if, if, if someone close to you is ill or passes away, you will feel sadness. If someone is threatening you, you might feel fear or potentially anger. But the thing to realize is the reason we have emotions is because they determine what we're going to do next. That's why they're adaptive. Mm -hmm. And they're dependent upon how we perceive our world. And so we have some power in changing how we appraise certain events. Do we appraise certain events as a threat to us, like something difficult, or is it a challenge that I want to, I want to reach for? And there's lots of emerging work that shows we have the ability to, by changing how we think about the situations we're in, we can change the emotions that we feel. And a lot of my work says, let's talk about how do we change our, our daily environment to focus on things that make us feel 
more gratitude as opposed to anger or frustration, more compassion as opposed to guilt or sadness. And to the extent that we do that, and we can talk about how people do that in a minute, um, it changes our emotional experience. And then that changes the decisions we make moving forward. Mm. So we're not, we're not, it sounds like we're taking a sort of a sideways approach. We're not attacking the emotions, but we're, we're, we're using our cognitive abilities. We're using our minds that we can control consciously to create an internal environment in which the emotions that will be useful can naturally arise. Sure, exactly. And then if we do that enough, it becomes a habit. And then we don't have to basically go through the steps to make ourselves think about this. But here's, here's one example. Let's say somebody gives you something, right? There's two reactions people have. One is, oh, damn, now I've got to give you something back. <laughs> or you can have the reaction of, oh, you know, you went out of your way to do this. I, I, I feel a lot of, of gratitude for you thinking about me. Uh, and you can code it in a different in a different way. You can walk by a person on the street who is homeless and asking for money, and you can think, "Oh, this person is you know lived their life badly. They're a lost cause. Now they're trying to scam me out of money." Or you can think, "This person could have been me, and they're on some hard luck, and you know I feel badly for them, and I'll feel empathy and compassion for them." And to the extent that we cultivate these other emotions, things like gratitude, things like empathy. They increase in us a willingness to accept sacrifices in the moment to not only help other people, but to help our own future self achieve our goals. And so we have work in our lab, for example, when people are feeling grateful, they have more, they suddenly have more patience and they're more willing to exert effort to achieve their goals, uh, to help other people. The, the trick is for millennia, what led people to be successful in this world wasn't having a lot of money wasn't getting great standardized test scores, wasn't going on a diet and having a beautiful physique. What helped us succeed was acting morally, was having good character, was being fair, being honest, being generous, because what that did is it let other people trust us and it let us form bonds that allowed us to cooperate with each other. And what we're seeing now is these emotions don't only make us willing to cooperate with each other, but they make us willing to cooperate with someone else who's important to our own future uh, success, and that is our own future selves. So when we experience compassion or gratitude more, we have more patience. We're willing to invest more money for our own future benefit. We're willing to exercise more now, even though it's not fun in the moment, because in the future it's better for us. And so uh, these emotions just help us be more virtuous and more successful. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so let's get to kind of the, the, the framing of, of what I wanted to talk to you about, which was, you know, the framing of your article was, you know, in December for New Year's resolutions. But the basic, sure. the basic idea is that as a culture, we suck at fulfilling our, yeah. our responsibilities to ourselves or, or we take we, yeah. we, we we give into temptation, we give into cravings and we're using more and more willpower and grit and it, those don't work and they come at a cost. That's right. So, you know, if you look at the, at the statistics, you know, one out of every five times people try to exert self-control to resist some temptation, whether that's to spend money you shouldn't, to eat something you shouldn't, whatever it might be, to cheat on something, um, we fail. And if we're tired or stressed or anxious, we fail even more. And for things we really care about, like New Year's resolutions, the stats are even worse. As I said in that article, you know, 25 percent, sorry, 7% of New Year's or 8% of New Year's resolutions are kept till year's end. 25% are gone by the second week of January. And so we all agree that sticking to our goals and pursuing our, 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 our goals is important, whatever those may be. Yet, we, as you say, we suck at it. 
Um, and the question is, we're always in this state of trying to fight. We're trying to overcome these impulses we have for immediate gratification. And what our work is showing is that if you don't rely on willpower, but if you cultivate these morally toned emotions, they actually increase our ability for self-control in a less effortful way. So one great example, I'll give you an example of money. In our lab, we bring people in and we have them answer lots of questions like, would you rather have X dollars now or Y dollars in Z days, where Y is always more than X. So would you rather have $35 now or $100 in three weeks, for example? Um, and what we find is most people are pretty impatient. That is, on average, if you kind of do the calculations, most people see $100 in a year as worth about $17 today. Another way of saying that is, if I gave you $17 today, you'd forego getting $100 in a year. Now, I don't know about you, but if Someone gave me the opportunity to quintuple my financial investment in a year. Unless I needed that $17 to survive today, that's a pretty good deal. And so people are making very irrational choices. But if we make them, if we put them in a state of gratitude, suddenly they don't make that choice, right? They become much more patient. They see $100 in a year is worth $30 today rather than $17. And what does this translate to? It means that if you're feeling grateful, you're just more patient. You value future gains more than immediate ones, which means you're more likely to, or you're less likely to spend money now rather than save it. You're less likely to eat something high, high in fat and bad for you now than to eat something more healthy now because you know it's better for you in the long term. And these emotions help us achieve our goals. They help us have self-control from the bottom up without us having to exert effort and to always be excoriating ourselves for failing. Right. And I was trying to picture like the, the clear linkage between, say, gratitude and not eating a fatty food. And I, I don't you know, I can't I can't find one. I can't find a direct relationship, except yeah. that it's just it's just like firing up a, a part of the brain that is more attuned to, to group success than maybe individual success. Close. So what it's doing is it is changing the computations that your brain's making about rewards in the future relative towards to rewards in the present. So humans typically discount rewards. That is, we see future rewards as less valuable than immediate rewards because we want pleasure in the moment. And so what feeling these emotions does is it prevents us from devaluing future rewards. It makes us see those future rewards as, as, as more valuable. And so you're right. What that basically means is why do we seem to behave more communally Right, help other people more when we feel compassion or gratitude to them. It's because from an evolutionary standpoint, if I exert some effort to help you now, if I help you move your you know, move your couch to a new apartment or I loan you money now, it's a cost to me. But I know in the future you're more likely to pay me back when I need it. And so there's a future gain to forming that relationship. And so that's how these emotions work. I mean, they they exist to make us behave more virtuously with other people by making us value future rewards more, which also can benefit our own individual selves. So you know, there's this great work by a guy named Hal Hirschfeld where he shows, looks at people saving for retirement. And what he finds is most people rather spend their money on the new iPhone, right, rather than save it for retirement. But if he takes a picture of you and he age morphs your face so I can see what I look like at 70, suddenly it makes future you more real to people. And if he makes future you look kind of sad, people suddenly have more compassion for their future self because it seems more real. And suddenly they start devoting or diverting more resources um, 
into saving for the future than spending it on the new iPhone or going on vacation this weekend. Um, and so really a lot of life is about how do we behave in ways that guarantee future success at some cost to our immediate pleasure, whether that's in how we eat and how we exercise and how we treat others. And we, what these emotions do is, is, is help us they push us toward valuing those future gains more. Gotcha. And I guess if we're valuing future gains by some sort of transitive property, our present self isn't going to benefit from those future gains. So we have to pay, um, have compassion. You know, we're, we're actually manifesting compassion for our future self because that's when the payoff's coming. That's when the payoff comes. And so, and so in the moment, I'm not eating the extra bowl of Ben and Jerry's, even though that would feel really good right now because I know next year, you know, my health is going to be better because I, because I skipped that. Hold on. Let me just turn this off. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, yeah, exactly that. And you know, why these emotions? Because when we treat other people better, when we sacrifice to help other people, things that we normally think things like gratitude and compassion do for us, those individuals will help us more in the future. Same thing for helping our own future selves. Mm -hmm. Um, so you, um, you write, I, I love the way you write about the, the whole sort of grit movement, which mm -hmm. which bothered me for a long time without my being able to articulate it. Could you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about the, the the costs and the problems sure. with, with that whole sort of willpower, grit, power your way through? Right. So things like self-control and grit have been the buzzwords, I think, you know, over the past 10 years and, and the way we they're typically summarized is, you should force yourself to do things hard and, and do things that are difficult and have willpower to study more, to eat better, to exercise, whatever it may be. The problem with that, uh, as we talked about in that article, is, is what we see is one out of five times people fail. And so what we're doing is we're setting our, we're giving ourselves advice to rely on willpower for how to succeed, when in actuality, that advice, we have data that shows that advice doesn't work very well. Um, which basically puts us in a constant state of tension. That is, if you're telling me I need willpower to succeed, right? Um, and we know that willpower, the more often you use it, the more often you try to resist temptations, it becomes harder to do. You know, we've all had that experience of trying to be really good on a diet or trying to really stick to an exercise regimen at the gym, and we'll just hit a wall at a certain point, and suddenly we, we just fail. And then we self-flagellate ourselves. Oh, look, I didn't have willpower. Oh, I must be a failure. And it's a state of putting ourselves in, in shame. It's a state of constant anxiety and stress because we're trying to force ourselves to do something we really don't want to do. And if you look at the research, not only do we fail, but it actually takes a toll. So there's this great work by um, a psychologist at uh, university, uh, sorry, at Northwestern University, where he looks at kids from disadvantaged backgrounds who are taught these strategies for grit and willpower to try and succeed. And what he finds is, yeah, if they're forcing themselves to try and will themselves to resist temptation, it works for a while, they can resist temptation, but the stress that it takes on their body exerts a toll over time. What you see is kind of premature aging of, of their immune systems, et cetera, because of the constant stress they're under. And so for my argument is, look, there's gotta be a better way to to resist temptation. And what we've all kind of forgotten about in this very kind of individualistic focused mindset of just work harder is that there are emotions that for a long time have, have, have helped us sacrifice. And so when I think of grit, right, I don't think about the kid who's studying violin and playing, practicing violin 10 hours a day, or the CEO who's like sleeping four hour a day so he or she can work hard. I think about 
you know, the, the mom, the single mom who's working two jobs so she can help her son pay for college or her daughter, or the grandfather who has emphysema, who's dragging an oxygen tank behind him to see his granddaughter's first soccer game. Mm -hmm. Why do we do those things? It's because we feel these deep-seated emotions of love and compassion and gratitude. That's what pushes us to sacrifice. And what we're seeing now is these emotions make us willing to sacrifice, but in a way that we're not in a constant state of tension. We're not trying to overrule impulses to do something we don't want to do. Rather, we value sacrifice for the future in the first place. And we know that when people experience compassion and gratitude more, it actually helps the body, not hurts it. It lowers blood pressure. It helps the immune system. It increases uh, uh, comfortable sleep and restful sleep at night. And it also builds social bonds to other people around us that itself enhances well-being. And so I think if we're going to, you know, yes, grit in terms of reaching our goals is important, but there's a more holistic way of getting there than kind of relying on willpower and excoriating ourselves when we fail. It's experiencing these moral emotional responses that help us achieve these goals. Yeah, and something else I've noticed when I am in a state of pride, you know, and we'll talk about pride because it's a, it's a confusing word. I don't, sure. Um, but you know, certainly gratitude and compassion is that I don't feel like I'm sacrificing, right? Because those right. those emotions feel really good in the moment. And I think the problem with this whole future discounting or present bias is that if you know from seventeen dollars to a hundred dollars, like that's almost insurmountable. Like I would need, you know, I can't imagine having a good enough body in a year to not want to eat this crap right now. Like there's no there's no body right. that I could possibly have. Well, but but to, and, 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 go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, but but to I can be hedonistic right now because this like gratitude and compassion for someone else and doing the right thing and sacrificing like feels so damn good. That's right. And you've hit on an important point there. So if we believe that our efforts aren't going to lead to the goal we want, then we don't exert self-control or willpower in the first place. You know, there's these classic examples of kids from lower SES backgrounds where people will give them these self-controlled tests. And they won't do very well. They'll be very impulsive and take the immediate reward. People say, oh, look, these kids have no self-control. It's not that. It's that they're raised in an environment where they believe effort isn't going to pay off, where they believe no matter what they do, it's not going to result in success, in which case it's perfectly rational to not want to try and eat right to get that body that you're saying, if I don't believe I'm going to have that body, then why even try? Mm. And so you're exactly right. Whereas if I feel these emotions it's rewarding to sacrifice, it's rewarding to give, whether that giving is to somebody else or to my own future self in the moment. And it helps us persevere to, to, to achieve goals that we may not even believe are likely to manifest. And I, you know, I, I think that's an important point. And you know, I, I know we've been talking about before we, we started this podcast, a lot of folks in, who listen to your show are, are interested in, in, um, in healthy outcomes and in, in sustainability, et cetera. And you know, I mean, if you think about, we talk about this with, with individuals who are who are who are trying to adopt vegetarian and veganism all the time. So you know, I'm a person. So I I live with 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 three ethical vegans. Um, I I really like the taste of meat, but I have come to actually appreciate the problems with the meat industry, both in terms of climate change and sustainability, and in terms of actual harm to living creatures. We have lots of pets, and as I begin to think about my enjoyment of this you know, sausage, I enjoy eating it. 
But at the same time, it's causing such distress to some other animal, some other being that I feel compassion and care for. And when I feel that compassion and care, suddenly it makes it much easier for me to resist this than in the old days when I would just think about, well, I shouldn't eat this because it's bad for my health. Oh, who cares? It tastes good anyway. And so you can begin to see how these emotions change what we value. And if it changes what we value, suddenly the game isn't about trying to resist a temptation. It's about not experiencing the temptation for this thing in the first place. Hmm. And that's that's so interesting that you bring that up. I didn't realize that you're uh, you're dancing with vegans. Uh, yes, every oh, yeah. day. Um, but like one of the big, you know, the there are lots of you know we're a very eclectic and I would say divisive community. Um, yeah. And one of the arguments is that you know people who are into into this for their health are much more likely to lapse because they don't have a bigger why. Whereas ethical vegans who are doing it for the animals are much more likely. But if we go out into the world and we like preach compassion for animals and we like spray paint, you know, uh, people who wear fur and stuff like we're going to yeah. we're going to turn people off. So, like, how do you help? Like, how do you help people feel compassion that starts with themselves? If I know that yeah. eating health, you know, eating well is going to, you know, reduce my uh, biomarkers, get me off meds, reverse my health problems. Like, like, like the central issue I see is that people have no compassion for themselves. That's true. Um, I mean, I think, I think you hit on important points there. One is the way to, to instill compassion is you can't force people or guilt people into it. Um, and I think that's why some people have these negative reactions, as you're saying, people who go out and spray paint things. Um, so the question is, you know, how do you begin to have compassion? And then once you have compassion, how does that begin to spread to more and more people or beings or however you might want to talk about it. Um, there are two ways that I talk about um, in my book. Um, and, there are and more say than say that, the name but... of your book so people can pause and buy it now. Yeah, sure. The name of the book is, is Emotional Success. Um, you can find it on my website, www.davedesteno.com or at Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever you look. Um, one way to do it um, actually is, is to engage in practices of, of meditation. And, and if you think about it, a lot of the scientific work on meditation has been focused on how does it increase your memory? How does it lower your blood pressure? How does it you know, help you standardize tests? How does it make your employees more creative? That's not what it was created for, right? You know, uh, you know, Buddha and other meditation teachers didn't give a damn about your SATs or your 401k. It was created to actually increase ethical behavior and to enhance compassion. So we have experiments we do that we talked about in the book, which is very rapidly over several weeks of meditation, what we begin to show is people begin to have more automatic, compassionate responses to those around them. Um, and they begin to include more and more individuals and then potentially more and more beings if we cross kind of the boundary into animals into the circle of, into the moral circle of, of, of who we consider worthy of our care and whose suffering we should care about. And it begins with ourselves, but then it spreads rapidly. And so one reason we think meditation does this is it begins to break down the artificial categories that, that we put around people. So, you know, we categorize people by race and gender and religion. And what part of meditation does is it begins to help you see the interconnection of all people and then the interconnection of all feeling beings. And if you feel other people are somehow linked to you or similar to you, then suddenly it becomes more easy and more automatic to feel compassion toward them. And I think the other way to do it is to engage in, in perspective taking. And so, you know, my, my, my daughters, they would begin to do this and help me do this initially with animals. They would begin to say, well, you know, dad, think about 
how you would feel if you were this animal in the in the you know the the food industry uh, lot or we have lots of pets you know would you eat this if this was your how would you feel if your pet was doing this and by perspective taking again we engage in feeling more compassion and more empathy readily and when we feel that suddenly it's it becomes less of a struggle as you're saying to want to resist doing the right thing it becomes easier to do it because we value it more so suddenly not causing an animal pain becomes a much more important goal to me than is the taste of the hedonic experience of actually, for the moment, eating this pleasurable tasting object uh, or substance. Uh -huh. Well, so it's almost like, you know, uh, there's, I think there's a lot of research that says, like, if you want to know how someone's going to behave, you just observe their social group, right? Like the, the norms are so powerful and, and mirrors and, and just, um, you know, how, whatever anybody else is doing that be, around us, that becomes our default. And we have to engage, we have to use energy to deviate from that default. And I think what, what you're saying is this increase in compassion through perspective taking and meditation increases the circle of who's our, who is our community. It increases the circle of who is our community. But at the same time, it also, so you're right. I mean, a lot of what we learn is important, what goals are important, what behaviors are to be valued, who is to be valued is determined by our social group. That feeds in there. But what meditation, the practice of compassion does is yes, it, it, it widens our social group so we care about more people, but it also alters the computations in, that are put in our mind by the social groups we live in. Um, and so suddenly, um, if I engage in meditation, what I begin to do is by seeing more people as similar to me, it breaks down the automatic link I have in my mind that, oh, people who are of this religion or this ethnicity aren't as valuable. Hmm. Exactly. Which reminds me of some of uh, Dan Ariely's experiments on dishonesty, mm. where I think he, he would go, you know, have have people uh, like, you know, confederates to the experiment, like mm. cheat on a test and get away with it and then watch other sure. people. And he found that that was mm. very highly predictive of other people cheating, except when the person was wearing the sweatshirt of, a, of an opposing school. That's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And so, right, we, 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 you know, these, these, where we see other people cheat and we'll cheat, you know, we have experiments in our lab where we will bring people in and we'll, we'll give them a coin to flip where the flip, you know, if, if it's heads, they get a reward. If it's tails, they have to do something awful that they don't want to do. They think they're doing it in private. Uh, we, of course, can tell which way the coin comes up. And what you'll see is if they believe they're not going to get caught, a vast majority of them will cheat, even though they didn't think they would going in. Um, but if we alter the nature of the social group, suddenly that when you cheat, it's going to harm somebody in your group or harm somebody from another group that will amp their moral behavior up or down dramatically because we all value social connection from our social group because those are the people who we rely on. And so, again, part of meditation or perspective taking, it increases that that the diameter of that circle of who's in our group, who should we care about and things like gratitude, right? What gratitude does is it makes us see other people um, as worthy. So if someone else helps me, the reason I feel gratitude for them, toward them, is so that it pushes me, no matter who they are, to want to pay that favor back, which then starts a relationship that hopefully will continue bringing benefits to both people down the line. And so if I feel gratitude, I'll work to do something that will help, help my future self because hopefully I'll benefit from that when I get there too. Right. It's this funny sort of game theory calculus that's underlying 
you know, like this. But that's what it is below our conscious awareness. But, but you know, I know we're running out of time. But before we do that, let me. You, you want to talk about pride because in my book I talk about gratitude, compassion, and pride. And you're right, pride does always seem to be kind of the odd one out. I can see how gratitude and compassion go together. What about pride? Isn't pride bad? Um, in our society, pride kind of has a negative connotation um, because we tend to think about it as as arrogance or as hubris. That is, people who are who are haughty, who are claiming credit for skills they don't have, um, or trying to lord it over people. But there's another facet of pride, which is I kind of think of like old school or authentic pride. That is, pride in one's actual abilities, pride in a job well done. You know, artisans who who work hard to craft something that they have expertise in that is actually valuable to other people. That kind of pride, I don't think is problematic. And, you know, we have experiments in our lab where we make people feel proud about their abilities. They will persevere 40% longer on difficult tasks. Why? Because when you feel proud about something, that's a marker that people around you are going to value this skill. When you look at kids, right, kids growing up, they'll do something and they'll look up at mom or dad and they'll see if they're praised for it. And if they're praised for it, what that is is a marker that this family or at a wider level, this culture va values that ability that you have, values that skill that you're developing. Then they internalize it and can be proud of their own selves for it. And so what that pride does is it pushes us to persevere. It pushes us to have grit, to, to work hard at things because it makes us valuable to those around us. And that, again, ensures that those people want to interact with us and want to cooperate with us and want to work with us. And so in our, in our experiments, when people feel proud in a group, other people find that attractive. They value that. They want to work with it as long as it's authentic, that as long as they're proud, expressing pride in skills that they actually have, and they're not lording it over the people. If they start to express pride and skills that they don't have, mm -hmm. then suddenly forget it. It's, it's a no-go. Right. Well, when I was reading your papers on pride, like I kept sac substituting the word service and it, it kind of worked. Like, cause you, it does. You, you, and, and I think traditionally that's what people are, I mean, if you think of pride in a virtuous sense, people are, we're proud of ourselves and proud of others and admire people who do it, who develop a skill that's in service of bettering themselves and those around them. Exactly. Right, because I, 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 um, I pulled out a quote that a primary function of pride is to motivate hedonically costly efforts aimed at acquiring skills that increase one's status and value to one's social group. So like this, right. this is the first sentence I've read in a long time that made me think that maybe team sports is not a bad idea, like as a, as a training ground for people to, to experience not, that. It, Exactly. So if, if you're part of a team, normally you will get up and go to a practice at 5 a.m. on a cold Saturday morning because you feel that your contribution is important to the success of this group. And therefore, the pride that you feel in holding up your end and then ultimately succeeding motivates you to do it. And in a way, that's way better than guilt or shame. Um, guilt or shame in very small doses can be hugely motivating. The problem is over time, if we're if we're guilting ourselves into doing something or shaming others into doing something, that negative state is very is very toxic. It's very stress inducing, and it takes a toll on the body. Whereas, if I'm doing something not because I'm worried about being shamed or guilted if I don't, but because I feel pride in in wanting to hold up my end, um, that is a much more positive uh, experience, and it, it does not take a toll on our well-being or on our body. But the one other point I want to say is team sports are good as long as they're balanced with 
fostering this idea of compassion too, because the risk of always doing things that benefit our group mm. is to become competitive and say, ah, well, we're going to help ourselves, but to hell with that other group, I want to beat them. And so it's important to have all of these emotions, gratitude, compassion, and pride simultaneously. Otherwise, pride on its own can kind of help your own group, but cause you to kind of be a little more, um, less, less hospitable to people who you don't perceive as in your group. Right. Yeah. To make sure the bag of fertilizer has nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Need them all. That's right. Yeah. I just want to uh, close. Like my, uh, I mentioned my business partner earlier, Josh Lajani. He, um, when the, he's a New Orleans Saints fan. You know, born and bred in New Orleans. And when the Saints won the Super Bowl in, I think, 2010, he was 420 pounds and, mm. you know, not 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 living a very healthy life and wanted to get healthier. And the way he did it was he imagined himself to be on the Saints and imagined the coach who'd come to instill an attitude of we can do this. We don't have to just settle. Yeah. And so I said everything he did, he imagined coach saying, yeah, Josh, we're proud of you. You're helping the team. So like he really That's exactly he saw he saw himself as a member of the team and his actions in the gym at four in the morning that no one was watching were going to help determine the Saints season the next year. That's exactly right. And and the pride that he simulated in his head from that interaction with the coach suddenly made it more worthwhile to him, helped him overcome the temptation to say, uh, it's cold, I'm tired, I'm going to skip it this morning. And there's lots of data out there showing this. You know, um, um, Adam Grant, who's a psychologist at, at, uh, at uh, Wharton, has great studies where he shows that within a corporate environment, when uh, superiors, uh, managers, either show gratitude or instill feelings of pride in their employees, Suddenly, their productivity goes up. They'll work harder in a way that doesn't lead them to complain or experience burnout, right? And what I'm what I'm arguing in this book is this is a way to give people grit from the bottom up in a way that doesn't rely on willpower and and you know self-flagellation, but in a way that makes us feel part of something, gives us more meaning in life, helps us achieve our goals, but also form those social relationships that enhance our well-being along the way. Right. So t t um, tell us what's more, the, the, the name of the book, your website, and how sure. people can, can follow your continuing unfolding work. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, the name of the book is Emotional Success. Um, my website is www.davedesteno, that's D-A-V-E-D-E-S-T-E-N-O.com. Or if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at David Desteno. Okay. Great. What, what are you working on next? We are uh, working now on um, ways to enhance uh, compassion, actually, because I think it's something the world could, could need more of, could use more of right now. So we're working on intervention strategies with meditation and other techniques to see uh, if, we can, if we can do that and how the, that will affect people's virtuous behavior. Oh, very cool. You have an app? No, <laughs> we don't. But we've, we've used, we've used uh, apps that are out there. The trick is to actually find an app that was developed by someone who actually has experience and knows what they're doing because there are some apps that don't have that background. Uh-huh. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of us talk about like meditation and diff different styles and things. And I'd love to I'd love to know like what's what's the sort of the you know minimum effective dose of a particular style with sort of minimum yeah, so we use, you know, we, we use Headspace because the Andy Puttacombe who designed it actually had many years of monastic training. And so I believe he knows what he's talking about. And so We've used it over as periods as short as three weeks and over as long as you know two to three months. And what we kind of see are, are changes in people's compassionate responding. I mean, more over more time. Um, is it as strong as actually sitting at the feet of a trained llama? No. 
but is it is it reliable and reproducible and effective? Yes. And so, you know, not everybody has the luxury of, of time of sitting with a trained meditation teacher. And so I think these apps are, 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 are hugely beneficial. And there's actually scientific data coming out, some of which you can find on my website showing that they produce changes in people's behavior. Cool. Well, that's another another nail in the coffin of my uh, too busy to meditate excuse. Yeah, there you go. So thank you for that. And David DeSeno, sure. thank you so much for taking the time and for this wonderful work that you're doing in the world. Sure. Thanks for having me on, Howard. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. So earlier today, Josh and our chief medical officer at Wellstart, Sarai Stancic, MD, and I were talking about where behavioral science is in terms of its ability to, to explain and predict things about human behavior. And I was likening it to the study of electricity during Ben Franklin's time, when all we had to study was lightning, like it struck or it didn't, and we didn't know much more about it than that. And that's kind of how behavioral science seems to work in terms of really predicting, for example, who will benefit from a well-start program, who will make that giant shift in the big change program, who will read a tweet or watch a video or check out an Instagram or go to a conference or attend a cooking class and suddenly some fire will be lit under them and they will start to take action and change. And I feel like David DeStena was one of those people who is pushing us out of the dark ages psychologically and really giving us an understanding and tools and predictable patterns by which we can help people influence their own behavior in ways that they want to. So I'm really grateful that he took the time to join us. If you found this episode interesting, useful, exciting, share-worthy, you know what to do. First of all, you can share it. Second of all, you can leave a review and a bunch of stars on iTunes. And finally, if you want, you can become a patron of the show. Just go to plantyourself.com, scroll down to the right sidebar, and click the Patreon button, and then you can help support the show, defray some of the costs of production, defray some of my time, and become part of a very cool community. If you're so inclined, you can check out the show notes for today's episode at plantyourself.com slash 292. And if you're new to the show, you can catch up on 291 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. Dot com. In garden news, there is no garden news. We're out of town for a few days. So whatever the garden is doing, it's a mystery to us, and we'll let you know when we get back home. In running news, Josh dragged me through the uh, Central Park Reservoir. Well, not literally through the reservoir, but around it. And I, I managed uh, four good miles, four miles under nine minutes. And then um, Josh took off, and I stayed behind and slowed my pace considerably. If you look on Strava, you can probably pinpoint the exact second that we parted company. But it feels good to, to get some jets under my legs for a little bit. Okay, and thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer, as always, for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his beautiful music. Thanks to you, the listener, especially today, because I'm on a crappy microphone with a laptop with ambient noise, and we got a little bit silly at the beginning. So uh, thanks for putting up with this. Um, be, be assured that if you are a patron uh, on Patreon, that your money is not going directly into my pockets and I'm, I'm skimping on audio equipment. This is a, a travel kit and it's not nearly as good as what I would get from my home studio. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Let's do it.
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jean Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Branch, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ayer, and Jen Kanofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X. Elton Feldman, Victoria Dolmanola, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Tech, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolmick, Sarah Durkis, Ron Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Bennett, Gillis, Sarah David, Donnie Hubler, Cyber, Dorona Visa, Gio and Carol, Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Mike Warbeck, The Mysterious, Trace Houston Z. Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Linneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harbour, Stephanie Alden, Martha Berthier, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Amat, Molly Levine, Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, A Plant Happy Organ, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rutland, Jules Wild, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hurston, Kate Goldland, Ayachi Lee Langholm, Hedegaard, Eza, Tuzun Wakani, Hainline, Eric Greer, Alicia Davis, Savino L, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen. Sherry Olakoski, a plant power for health. Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Taryn, Joe Crab. You know what? I'm nervous with people. No one's ever watched me do this before. Tanya Lewis, Taryn and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Dibbett, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Penny, Linnea Linquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casilla, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosalind McAvee, Dan DeCorny, Stephen Leenan. Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Cards, Deanne Bishop, for your generous support of the podcast. Before we go, any final words? Do something different today. Take the next step. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gillis, Sarah, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva L, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, at Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Anne Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cards, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Len, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parang Ganshik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson for your 
your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.